welcome to SGTM Talks. We hope you find this encouraging and inspiring. We come to week four of, and our final week on the subject of David, King David. When I was speaking two weeks ago, I read to you 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, as I believe it describes beautifully the heart of God for David and for us. Let me read it again. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Surely when we think of David, we think of a man who exemplifies that perfectly. As we looked at two weeks ago, he was so lowly, forgotten even in his own family. A man who was mightily used by God, but who was lowly, and in the words of Paul, also foolish, weak, and despised. Foolish, weak, and despised. David, humbled servant, was weak. It all started out so well for him, didn't it? He starts out as humble, but victorious. We can all picture him standing there before Goliath with that slingshot and that pebble and that deep trust in the Lord, utterly obedient to God and discovering that even the smallest stone can have the deepest impact. But as time goes by, we start to see the weakness in the man. The deep core pride grows unseen and unchecked and has devastating consequences. Fast forward. 2 Samuel 24, David insists on taking a census. His pride is rising up. He wants to sit back and glory in his own power. What's actually happening is the Lord is allowing Satan to tempt David, and he falls for it. His pride is revealed for David and all to see. It's one of those painful moments in Scripture. God was angry with David. 70,000 people died, we read, simply because he could no longer obey the Lord. David failed to remember that a man only had the right to number what belonged to him. Israel does not belong to David. Israel belongs to God. And when we fail, when we are disobedient, when we think we know best, when we act with selfishness, it really can affect other people. It can create destruction. We, witness, we can witness the most extraordinary multiplier effect. It, we look and we go, hang on, how did that happen? I, I, I didn't mean for that to happen. David, friend of God, was lowly. God chose to use him. He, he was weak. God still chose to use him. Wouldn't it be great if that was a one-off mistake? But we know it wasn't because, as we well know, David, humbled servant, was also so foolish. For all the amazing ways that God used him, David retained the ability to behave with excessive folly. He played with fire, he got burned. I'm sure he didn't mean it to start out that way, but it multiplied and multiplied. He hurt others, he hurt himself. The story of his greatest victory, which most people in the world know about against Goliath, is as well known as the other great moment in his life. Not great, but it was a great failure. His sin against the woman Bathsheba and her husband. Allow me to whiz through a precy of this story. Hold on to your seats. Here we go. Lowly David becomes king. He's no, by no means perfect. Indeed, his greatest stumble comes after years after his coronation. He's walking on the roof of his palace one evening. And he spots a woman bathing. And apparently he goes temporarily insane over her. 
Your Honor. His iniquities reveal that she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men, his special forces. But even her marriage status does not dash the plan he is already now forming in his heart. He has her brought to the palace. He has sex with her. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David soon falls even deeper into sin, trying to cover up this awful behavior. Summoning Uriah to Jerusalem, David urges him to go in and spend the night with his wife, hoping that he'll have sex with her and they'll have a baby and he can just uh, pretend that it's not David's. But the faithful soldier refuses to go and sleeps at the palace door instead to protect the king. David then gets him drunk to try and get him to go into his wife. Finally, David concocts a plan by which Uriah is killed in battle and then proceeds to marry Bathsheba. It's like Game of Thrones. He has now committed adultery and proxy murder with no apparent remorse. But God will not let his son remain in sin. God sends Nathan the prophet to David to tell David a parable about a rich man who steals a poor man's beloved ewe lamb. And apparently, assuming the story is real, David expresses outrage, saying the rich man ought to make restitution and should die. Then Nathan delivers the killer blow, you are the man. He then reminds David of all of God's goodness to him and asks why he has despised, quote, despised the commandment of the Lord. And by God's grace, at that moment, David is enabled to see the truth. I have sinned against the Lord, he admits. He then goes on to make one of the most heartfelt repentances in Scripture, expressing his sorrow and longing for restoration to God in Psalm 51. David sinned greatly. David repented greatly. He's rich, he's privileged, he's successful, he can have anything and everything he wants. A moment of temptation, moment of distraction turns into arrogance, abuse, and adultery. And rather than repent and turn back, he digs deeper and deeper, burying himself until Nathan comes to him, burying himself in his attempt to cover everything up. There's this horrifying vortex of lies that takes him down and down even into murder. His descent into deceit is so far and so fast. It's a story of moral and spiritual destitution. And as we read in the Psalms, he knows what it is to have God's Spirit lift off him, depart from him, the ultimate desolation. He is forgiven, yes. But what he has done will have a lasting impact on his life. It's a huge mess. So I suppose the question for each of us today is, have you ever made a mess? Hopefully nothing quite like that. By God's grace, out of the mess, you've heard this before, can come a message. The message of this story, the message of the whole of Scripture, is that there is forgiveness. There is always forgiveness for those who have repentant, humble hearts before the Lord. The message is that David remains loved, preciously and profoundly loved by God. Such an extraordinary message of grace that it appears to every logical analysis as utter foolishness. David is foolish, but there's a sense in which the message of grace coming from God through the scriptures is foolishness itself. 
How can God love someone who has failed so completely, who has hurt others so badly? And not only can he be forgiven, but there is this extraordinary turnaround, the mess into the message. Solomon, the son David then goes on to have with Bathsheba, will go on to become king himself. He will go on to build the temple, and he will appear in the lineage of Jesus Christ at the start of Matthew's gospel. It's the ultimate story of beauty from ashes. As David experiences, an experience David expresses in one of the most, as I've already mentioned, the most raw and most beautiful of Psalms. If you ever feel the need to say sorry to God, then open Psalm 51. It's described as a Psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, just in case you forgot, David, we're gonna put that down for all time in the Bible. He writes this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all of my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. You know that feeling when you've done something wrong and it's like here and no matter where you look, it's right in your face. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then it turns. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. He's desperate to stay close to God. He's felt what it is to be far from God. And God, by his grace, hears David's prayer. He hears, he forgives, because that's what God excels at, redeeming even the most awful situations. But the truth is, I suppose God shouldn't have had to, should he? Because David was so foolish, he didn't really need to be. He had everything. So this is such a powerful message to us that we each have to tread so carefully through this life. Live mindfully. Recognize our own propensity for folly. No matter how strong we feel, no matter how well-placed or successful we are on the surface, the story of David is a reminder to us of what it is to be lowly and weak and foolish and also finally despised. David, humbled servant, was despised. As we look across his life from the earliest times, David knew what it was to be despised. Do you remember his brother Eliab? Imagine your biggest brother talking to you like he does in front of everyone, including Goliath the giant. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and said, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Nice. Nice, Eliab, talk about gaslighting. But it wasn't just his brother's anger and jealousy that he had to contend with. David later would then have to go on and run for his life from the rage of Saul. Saul, who despised David with every fiber of his being, meaning David had to go off and hide in the caves. Now, believe it or not, I'm an introvert. I love my cave time. Uh, cave time is important as long as you get to come out of said cave from time to time. 
And as long as that cave isn't being forced on you like it was on David, Saul hated David. It was visceral. God had taken his hand off Saul and put it on David. Surely the, one of the most chilling verses in all scripture, 1 Samuel 16, 14, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Meanwhile, this is what we read one verse before. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. David bursts onto the scene, slays Goliath, goes out with the armies of Saul and is hailed a national hero. They're even singing songs about him. It's embarrassing reading it. They sing songs that Saul was okay, but David's the real deal. I would not have wanted to see Saul's face at that point. So he's on the run. He's hiding in caves. Saul starts out humble, courageous, so tragic to watch his descent into bitterness and envy. He hates David because of his success. The inescapable truth is when God raises someone up, opposition comes also. It's fascinating to read the stories of the greats of the church, people who today we honor as giants of the faith. But back in their day, it was a very different thing. Seeing the power of God was so evident in the lives and ministries of both Whitfield and Wesley, the 18th century English Anglican clerics who helped spread the gospel in Britain and the American colonies. They were both openly mocked by the established church for their preaching in the open air. Great Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon suffered similar abuse. William and Catherine Booth, founders of the Salvation Army, were labeled as the Antichrist for the way they went about their missions. I mean, that's a bit harsh, I think. All of, them were doing, all, of the, all of them were doing was preaching the truth of the kingdom of God, just loving God with all their hearts and looking to love people the same. Maybe that's something of your experience. Perhaps you feel a weight of opposition against something that you're doing, all that you are. If that's so, I wonder if we would do well to ponder why we think we would be any different to David or Jesus himself for that matter. We don't go looking for opposition but neither should we be surprised when it comes. Instead we can be encouraged that what started badly God can turn around for the good. We read this in 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave, another cave, of Adullam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard about it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Isn't that beautiful? It's extraordinary leadership anointing. Despite his circumstances, he's very naturally gathering people. And the next verse says, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. In other words, God has a plan. Even in the opposition, God is at work. Hear that today. In your life, God is at work. In our difficulty, God is still at work. Goodness knows I know what this is like. In our debt and in our depression, God is still at work. In our distress and even being despised, God is still at work. If we will only trust the Lord, if we will wait patiently, as David himself says in Psalm 37, we will see his hand at work and feel his arms around us. We will see his glory because that's the message, not just for David, but for you today. That's the central message of 
the Christian faith. We so easily get this wrong. I know I do constantly. We think we can't come before God unless we are worthy, unless we've worked hard and gritted our teeth and done what we should do to be good. Such a great lie. It's a huge, massive lie. We think, oh, I can't come unless I'm sorted. Surely that's what makes sense. Surely that's what codified religion would would insist. But the truth couldn't be further from this. The glorious scandal of grace is that it makes no sense. It doesn't fit within the structures of human logic. And that's why, coming back to what Paul writes, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you delight in using the lowly. You love the weak. You're passionate about the foolish, and you forgive them. And the despised you draw alongside, and you comfort You build your kingdom with such as these. Jesus is just like the men and women that you gathered around you. It's the story throughout scripture. It's the story here today. It's a beautiful story. We don't understand it, but we love it. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, Lord. I pray for each of us that by your Holy Spirit you'd now just take this into each of our hearts. I especially want to pray for you if what I said about that my sin is ever before me, it's like you, t- you turn and it's all you can see. Just, just know that God loves you, that there is forgiveness. Know today that there is a new day. Just trust in him. And as we worship now, Just bring whatever you need to bring before God and say, I repent. I am sorry for my foolishness. I want to trust you more. I want to follow you more closely. I need to know your love today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to SGTM Talks. We hope you found this insightful and inspiring and can tune in again soon. In the meantime, try out our website, sgtm.org.